Okay, 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, uh, I think that before we sort of get into this, I think it would be important to maybe spend a few moments talking about the character and the nature of the writings of the apostles. Now, uh, the disciples of Jesus were very obviously and very clearly close to him, right? I think it goes without saying that these were men who grew deeply dependent upon the Lord and Savior that they had lived with and walked with and traveled with and ministered with for the last three years. And I also think that it would go without saying that this deep-rooted relationship that had been built with him was one that created almost like a, uh, for lack of a better term, a dependence that necessitated Christ being around in order for them to be able to breathe and live. These were people that were very, very close to the Lord. And when the Lord passed away, when he gave up the ghost, as the Bible says, and even when he had resurrected, uh, the relationship at the time that he was being crucified, let me just say this, all hope for these apostles was lost. Many of them looked at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as oftentimes, uh, as it was viewed by many, as the end of it all, right? Christ is crucified, it's over, he was not the person that we thought he would be. We thought he was going to be the Messiah that was going to save us from the political machine of the Romans. We thought that he was going to usher in the kingdom of God. We thought that all of these things were going to take place, and it wasn't until Christ was uh, literally resurrected and appeared to them and taught them that he that they understood what was really going on. Peter, of course, is no exception to this, right? As a matter of fact, if you remember, just as Peter was uh, getting closer and closer and closer to the Lord, we know that he had made some very bold moves, you know, especially near the end of the Lord's life. And when the Lord, just before he had been crucified, uh, Peter, he really kind of became a big chicken. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you remember the story of Peter, right? Peter says, Lord, I'll die for you. I'll do anything for you. Whatever it takes, God, I'm going to be that person. And God says, look, before the, the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me. And so Peter, of course, being convinced of the fact that there's no way he's going to deny the Lord, goes into this unique period where the Lord is taken away. It's a scary time, no doubt, right? We know that. For them, it was a very fearful time when the Lord was taken away to be crucified. And if you remember the story, Peter's kind of gathered around the public area, and the people look at him and they go, Ha, uh, you were one of the guys that was with him, weren't you? I don't know what you're talking about. No, you were the one of those guys. No, that's not me. Little girl goes up to him and says, now I know for a fact, I'm pretty sure you were one of those guys. And the way the Bible would seem to describe it, he responds swearing back to her. I blanketly told you it's not me. Uh-oh. Then he's instantly made aware by the rooster crowing, basically. Whatever it does. I'm not that good at it. Doesn't sound so ominous, you know? I think the way that rooster would have sounded, it probably would have been an ominous sound, like a something like that. I don't know. 
Peter is made aware of the fact, is reminded of the fact that he would deny the Lord. Now, something unique was going on in Peter's heart at that time. And if you will examine the early church history, the, the, the history of the early inception of the church, of, of the growth of the church, of the Spirit of God coming upon people in the church, one of the things you're going to realize when you look at Peter's life is you're going to realize that God was doing a work of breaking in Peter's heart, right? Peter, just like Moses, said, I got this! I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I, I, this is, I, I got your back, God, right? Remember Moses, before Moses ends up in the wilderness and, and you know, he, he's got his act together. He was raised up in the courts of the pharaohs. He knows how to articulate everything. He's strong. He's a man's man. He's a tough guy. We know, I mean, this guy is like the way it's supposed to be. God breaks him, ends him up in the, ends him, uh, he ends up being in the wilderness for a bunch of years. Forty years later, the Lord appears to him. And what does Moses do? He doesn't say, I'm the man anymore. He goes, I, 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 I can't even, t t I, I can't even t talk. How do you want me to go to the f f f Pharaoh? Remember? He was broken. And it wasn't until he was broken that God could use him in a tremendous way. Why? Because he needed to be. So that no one would be able to look at him and go, well, that, was that man was raised by the Pharaoh. Of course, he's so smart. He's gifted. He's wise. He has so much insight. He has so of course, he's the perfect man. He knew what he was doing. He had the perfect language and he could say all the right things. And have you seen how physically fit he is? And this is a man who's educated. He's got his whole act together. He's the perfect guy. He's perfect. No. Same thing with Peter. Peter, probably one of the most uneducated goofballs on the face of the earth at the time. Foolishness came out of his mouth. <laughs> I mean, the kind of foolishness that came out of the mouths of all of these guys. Don't wash my feet, Lord. Come on, don't wash it. You're not, don't you touch my feet. Well, if you won't let me wash your feet, then you have no part of the kingdom. Okay, wash my whole body. <laughs> it's the kind of foolishness these guys talked. You know what I mean? And I'd probably say the same dumb things, right? This massive, huge thing takes place on top of the hill. Oh my gosh, I see these people appearing with the Lord. God, let's just build tents, right? I mean, some of the craziness. And we get to a place where Peter is now defeated. He's recognized he's denied the Lord. He's got really nothing to offer. He sees himself as a coward who's failed God. He sees himself as somebody who, who in essence, really is, is at a real loss for doing anything for the kingdom. I'm sure that's how he had to have viewed himself. Until God goes to him and says, look, Peter, it's okay. Feed my sheep. If you love me, you're going to do that. And he brings him back to a place where now when he goes to serve the God who created him, he's no longer serving the God who created him from the perspective of a man who knows all and does all and has got the right answer and has everything you know, behind him. He's coming from the perspective of a person who's broken and who's open enough to allow God to do something on his behalf. So we know what happens on the day of Pentecost, right? They wait up there. We know the Holy Spirit comes and fills these men. They start speaking in tongues. 
You've got groups of people, thousands of people that are gathered, and they're watching people speak in their own native tongue the praises of God. You know what I mean? And it's kind of interesting. It'd be like some guy who never spoke a word of English before. You know, all of a sudden speaking perfect English. Or somebody who's always spoken English their whole life speaking perfect Mandarin. That kind of dynamic was taking place. And some of the comments were, people were amazed. They were shocked. Some people said, these guys got to be drunk. And Peter gets up there and goes, man, they're not drinking. Let me tell you what's going on here. This is what the prophet Joel says. This is, this is what the word of God tells us. These men are filled with the spirit of God. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you the story of a, of a man that I worship, the true and living God. One who was crucified and is resurrected from the dead. The one who has come to tell you that there's message, the message of hope, that there is hope. You don't have to go to hell. You can experience salvation. And this guy who was cursed on a little girl because he was so scared of the fact that she was accusing him of knowing Jesus is the same guy that gets up there and says, I've got a message of change for you and I don't care what the consequences are for what I have to say. That's the mighty, powerful God that transformed the life of a man who was completely helpless without the Lord. That should be the story of all of our lives, right? God took us in a place even when we thought we were strong and reminded us of how vulnerable and weak we actually are. And then when we're ready and willing to admit that we are incapable of doing any and all of these things on our own, Christ then takes us and he uses us in a mighty way. Now Peter, through being open to the voice of God and being open to the voice of the Holy Spirit working and moving in his life is now established as a man who is highly respected and looked up to in the church. People see him. They desire attention from him so that he can counsel them in the things of God so that he can teach them. He is a leader in the church whose words are very valuable at this point. God has raised him up and completely changed him to be this man of God who is leading people in the ways of the Lord, teaching them about the things of God. And so Peter finds himself pinning to paper some thoughts in the section of this letter that we're about to read. He's actually speaking about the issue of the second coming of Jesus. Now, I'm going to say this. You need to be mindful before we read this of the fact that the man who was writing this was a man who was ashamed prior to being filled with the spirit of the true and living God. You're talking about a man who was hesitant to defend and speak on behalf of the God that died for him. And when the spirit of God came upon him, he now speaks about him with great boldness and authority. And now we're in a different situation here. Now we're not in a situation where there are people gathering around him and saying, weren't you the guy that hung out with him? Aren't you that guy? Aren't you that guy? No. Now, many years has gone by. Now we know Christ has been crucified. He's resurrected. He's been ascended into heaven. And with much of that time having gone by, over the years, at least 15, 20 years now, 
People are saying, this God, this Jesus, he says he's going to come back. He's not coming back. I haven't seen him. Lots of years have gone by. There's no way he's coming back for anybody. That's ridiculous. It's just an urban legend. It's a myth. And Peter says, uh-uh-uh-uh. It's time that we address that very issue. First of all, I'm just going to say this right now so that you're aware, you know this, you are in a church where your pastor is phenomenally gifted in the area of Bible prophecy. He has educated you well into what is happening in the times and the days that we live. And if you, even if you have your head in the ground like an ostrich, you still will know, based on what the Bible says and based on the current events today, that Jesus Christ is very quickly coming back for his church. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, that has to take place. Nothing, according to biblical precedent. Nothing that has to take place in order for the rapture to take place. As a matter of fact, we are beginning to see the formulation of things that I think are going to happen after the church is raptured. I used to remember when we would talk about this European economic sort of union from, you know, forming. People thought we were crazy. They said there's no way that, that any, any of that type of thing will happen. Great Britain will never allow such a union to take place because the existence of a nation like Great Britain will keep su such a thing from happening. Then Brexit takes place. Britain removes themselves from this organization of nations. Okay? Now what's holding them back? And things are dropping and raising and dropping and raising and things are changing and finances and economy and all kinds of things are happening right now where there is lots and 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 lots. Can I keep saying lots and lots for the next 25 minutes? Lots of things that are happening that shows that that aspect of things are beginning to formulate. How about this? How about when we talk about Ezekiel and we talk about what the Bible says concerning Russia? And the Bible, what the Bible says concerning Iran. And what the Bible says concerning Turkey. And all of these nations that are going to surround Israel and attack. All of the naysayers for years and years and years and years have been saying, well, these prophecy people are conspiracy theorists. They're all nuts. They're all crazy. There's no way in the world any of that can happen. That's crazy because there's no way on God's green earth you're ever going to see Russia be in cahoots with Syria, Turkey, or Iran. Pick any one of those people. It'll never happen. Oh, really? Read the news lately? Read the news in the last four years? I remember when Don and I were doing Pastor's Perspective many, many years ago, and we would get questions. Don made me the self-proclaimed expert. I was the Don-proclaimed expert, right, on the issue of the Middle East. And so we get these calls from people, and they'd say, well, Pastor James, what do you think about ISIS? Are you concerned about them? And they're growing, and they, they're, they're, they're certainly not the JV team in the Middle East coming to attack. They're more significant than that. And I would say the same thing every time. Both Don and I would say the same thing. We'd agree with one another. 
not claiming to be prophets or the sons of prophets. We'd say, I'm not really concerned with ISIS. What I'm more concerned with, and of course people would get all up in arms about that. How can you say that? The ISIS represent the Sunni. They're the majority of Muslims. They're probably 90% of Islam. How can you say you're not worried about them? I'm not. I'm more worried about the Shiites. I'm more worried about Iran. And I'm more worried about what they're going to do and what's going to take place there. You shouldn't be worried about ISIS. We got hate letters. I got hate mail from all kinds of people. Writing letters, you're crazy, you're nuts, that'll never happen, you're a heretic, you're a false teacher, how can you say that? You'll never see that happen, the Bible doesn't say anything about that, you're imagining things. Oh, well don't let my word be true and every man a liar, let God's word be true and every man a liar. I don't see those guys writing letters now. And that's not because I was right, it's because God is right. Right? And we're seeing it happen all over the world. We are, I remember when I started teaching through Bible prophecy 26 years ago, I remember we would be lucky, blessed, and throw a party if we could get one news headline from Jerusalem, much more the Temple Mount, every six months. If we could get two headlines a year, woohoo, we're cooking. Things are happening. How about the fact that we're getting as many as two per minute now? How would you like the fact that in ground zero, if you just simply type in the Temple Mount, you will see hundreds of news articles generated within the last 24 hours. Why? Because Jesus is coming back soon. If I told you, if I told you even three years ago, that within the next few years, even if I told you within the next 10 years, the United States would be the first among the great nations to move their embassy to Jerusalem. You would all laugh. Well, maybe not you guys. But most people would laugh. They'd say, you're nuts. That'll never happen. We've had every United States president make that declaration that they would do so, you know, all the way back since the Truman days. And no one's ever done it. Wow, where is the U.S. Embassy located now? Jerusalem. And I know, forgive me for saying this, I know that everybody says, well, Trump is the man. And, and listen, God bless him for making that decision. And I'm grateful for the decision that he's made. He's the most pro-Israeli president we've ever had since Truman, perhaps. I will just say that. And that was probably one of the most morally and ethically courageous political decisions I've ever seen in recent U.S. history. But I'll also say this, God was the one that did that. And I'll tell you why God was the one that did that, because we are in a place today and we are in a place now and we are in a place that's coming soon where God is setting up the political environment, the economic environment. He's setting up the, the, the cultural environment. He's setting up the, 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 the climate. He's setting up everything to make it easily accessible for the events that we read about in Revelation and Daniel. And I will tell you this, if you don't think that Jesus Christ is coming back soon, you just haven't been reading the Bible. You just don't know the Bible. Now, Peter is going to address this on a slightly different level from a slightly different perspective. He's going to address it from a different angle. One perhaps that we should be considering. Because Bible prophecy is beautiful. And it speaks for itself, right? I mean, 
I had a guy come up to me, a pastor come up to me recently and tell me, well, James, I'm really not into that Bible prophecy stuff. Wow, that means you're not into 75% of the Bible. Is that right? You're not, you, don't, you're, you only believe 25% of the Bible, right? If that, well, you know what I mean. No, I don't know what you mean. Explain. The Bible has done for us, the Word of God has done for us something that no other piece of literature in human history has done. It has given us a confidence in its perfection because everything that it has ever predicted has been accurate, dead on the money, right on, no waiver, no... The Lord has been batting a thousand. Right? He never gets it wrong. He never gets it wrong. And so we know it that way. I don't have to get into it from that perspective. I can tell you that the Bible is coming to life as I speak. I don't have to get into the description of what that looks like. You know that. You've been taught in remarkably well concerning those things. Tom talks about it with you every single week. We talk about it on TV on a regular basis. This is not anything that is foreign or strange to any of us. But I will tell you something that is interesting. I will tell you that even then, people still choose to harden their hearts concerning the truth of Christ's return. This is how Peter chose to address it in 2 Peter. He says this in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, now this second epistle, meaning this second letter, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. In other words, I'm writing this second letter to you so that I can stir up your memory. So that I can remind you of some things that are true, but things that you have seemed to have forgotten. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So I want to write this letter to you folks. This is you know, plain English here. I want to write this letter to you folks to do a couple of things. I want to remind you of the words of the prophets who went before us. Those that spoke on behalf of the Lord and I want to remind you of the commands that we the apostles have given to you. So what is he talking about? He says, well, knowing this first. What does he want us to know first? In other words, again, we talked about it this morning. If you listen to my study this morning, he's talking about prioritization of understanding. This is, the, the, this is the area that I want you to pay attention to definitively. So he says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. Okay, I've never seen those two not be together. I've never seen anybody scoff the Lord, who did not walk in their own lusts. I have never, ever seen somebody who calls themselves an atheist, ever, who was not using that lifestyle or that position to live whatever it was that they wanted to live and do whatever it was that they wanted to do. You ever wonder this about atheists, by the way? Like, I think about guys like Richard Dawkins. What an absolute joke, by the way. We talk about joke. He is an intellectual joke. Okay, he's a dishonest liar, completely. And dishonest liar is like worse than a liar because he's even dishonest about the way he lies. 
This is a guy who will stand on the fact that God doesn't exist. And yet, he spends a good majority of his energy expressing his anger towards God. How are you angry at something that doesn't exist? Does that ever make sense? But I'm just angry with you, even though you don't exist. Okay, bro. Whatever. He talks about pure science. Oh, this is a, pure, a purely scientific approach that we follow. Is it really? You know, you're a cult leader. And people follow you because you have led a cult and your cult people agree with the things that you say even though there is no real factual basis for any of the conclusions that you're coming to. This is the idea behind people who scoff the name of the Lord. This is the idea behind people who mock and put down the Lord. People who do that, who walk scoffing the things of God, are people who are doing a number of things. The first thing that they're doing is they're walking according to their own lust. They are looking for justification to live their life in an ungodly way, and they don't want anybody telling them anything differently. So the only way that they can do that justifiably is by putting down the church and the things of God. You know how many times I've been told that I was stupid because I was a pastor? Or that I lacked intellectual capacity because I chose to believe in a mythological God or a mythological religion? And I oftentimes, oftentimes will ask them to substantiate. In other words, give substance to what you're saying. Tell me why it's intellectually lacking. Tell me where the breakdown of critical thinking takes place when you choose to receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart. Show me where the breakdown is. If I can carry in front of you more manuscript evidence that the Bible exists, then I can provide for you manuscript evidence that Shakespeare existed. Would you still believe me? That's a whole different thing. We know Shakespeare existed. How do you know Shakespeare existed? He's hundreds and hundreds of years removed from you. How do you know? Come on, that's ridiculous. It's about as ridiculous as you denying the authenticity or the, 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 the realistic aspects. I mean, you're foolish. Truth be told, you're not looking for the truth. If you were looking for the truth, you would not be this way. I mean, this is the premise behind the media that exists today, right? That's why, that's why we get the name fake news, right? Because they're not interested in telling the truth. The only thing that they're interested in doing is telling you something where you get ratings. You've heard the stories? When they report the news concerning the thing that's going on between the Palestinians and the Jews. The Palestinians will launch 19,000 rockets, 19,000 rockets into Israel over the last several years. And when we launch, when Israel launches two or three to defend themselves, Israel's the oppressors, they're the destroyers, they're the haters. Wow. So you mean to tell me the 19,000 opportunities you had to show a missile coming in from the north or a missile coming in from the east, you missed, but you happened to catch the missile that came in to defend the others? Come on. It's ridiculous. But the reason why they continue to do the things that they do is because they're walking in blindness and they're walking under satanic oppression? 
and deception, and they choose to want to live the evil lifestyle that they continue to live as a justification for their actions. It has nothing to do with the truth, because if they were seeking to pursue the truth, they would be on their knees crying, saying, Lord, forgive me, and they would be receiving the love that Jesus Christ has for them. They would be trans- their lives would be transformed. And Paul, uh, Peter is telling this. He says, know this first. Look, there's going to come scoffers. They're going to come walking after their own lust. And they're going to say this. Ready? This is what they're going to say. They're going to say, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. See, that's a bunch of baloney too, isn't it? Where? Come on! Do you see any evidence? I don't see any evidence. Where is this promise? This promise has fallen amiss. People have been saying for thousands of years that God was going to, that Jesus Christ is going to come back for them. For thousands of years, they've been saying he's going to come back. And you know what? He hasn't. So this must be a bunch of baloney, folks. Uh uh-uh. uh. Don't be mistaken. And, and Peter's going to explain this. Everything's been the same. And that's you know what a lot of people say, right? I spoke to a man recently who told me, and he's a non-believer, and believe me, I want to take him to heaven with me so bad. I really do. And he says, I told him the other day, I said, you know, things in this world are just getting darker. And they're getting more and more evil. And he says, actually, I'm reading a book right now. And it's a very good book that actually makes the argument that things have really been the same from the very beginning. And there's actually an argument that says that things are actually beginning to get a little bit better. Well, I read a book that tells me that there would be people like you saying those things. Right? It's deception. Ah, everything's been the same. Things are getting better. Come on. For this, pay attention to this. This is a heavy word right here. For this, they willingly, that's the word. They willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. These are the same people that made a mockery of the impending judgment that God was going to bring upon the world when he destroyed the world with water. These are the same men that are saying that judgment never even happened. These are the same men that choose to ignore the fact that although God promised, promised to never judge the world by water again and destroying it, but will one day destroy it with fire, say that nothing is going to happen. It is interesting, by the way, guys, and you, I'm sure, have already heard this taught to you many times, When God would make a covenant with man, there was always a symbol of that covenant. 
Correct? Okay. Let's talk about some of these symbols. When God made a covenant with Moses concerning the law for his people, the symbol of that covenant was what? The Shabbat. It was the Sabbath. You keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath is a symbol of that covenant. Jesus Christ makes a new covenant. We are his church. The symbol of that covenant is what? Communion. We did it this morning. Communion is the symbol of that covenant, right? The symbol of the covenant between God and Abraham, when God promised Abraham that he would multiply and make a nation of him, was what? Anybody remember? Circumcision. Very good. That's right. There was another symbol, a very important symbol, of a covenant that God had made with man, specifically with one man, with Noah. What was the symbol of that covenant? The rainbow. God used the rainbow to tell Noah that the earth would never be destroyed by water again. And you know what man does every single time with every single covenant that God has made and every symbol that he has provided for that covenant? He has taken that symbol and he has perverted that symbol. And in the case of Noah, I don't have to get into the description of how the symbol of Noah's promise has been perverted. However, or God's promise to Noah. However, I can tell you this. I can tell you that even though man sees the symbol, the evidence of God's promise to mankind and perverts it, it still does not prevent God from following through on his word. See, God is not like the new age mom that you see at Whole Foods. You know what I'm talking about when I say that, right? Then you go to Whole Foods. I don't frequent that place a lot. But you go to Whole Foods and you, you walk in the store, and this could be really any store, but I say Whole Foods because it makes for a better story, right? You go to Whole Foods and you see the mom and her child's having a fit. Oh, I want my candy, whatever. And the mom says, okay, honey, now I'm going to give you a count to three. And if by the time I get to three, if you don't stop, then something is going to come. And the mom starts going, one. I'm like, okay, go on, do my shopping. Go off, order my pizza, stand by, wait for it to cook. Go do a few other things, come back. And you see that same lady there, standing there, the kid's still going crazy, and the lady's going, 98, 99, 100, 101. God is like my dad. See, before the O in no would come out of my mouth, I don't care where I was. The back of my father's hand went right to my mouth in his heavy Middle Eastern accent. James, I told you to do this. No! If you don't do this, I will spank you. My dad never lied to me when he told me those things. He did it. You know what I'm talking about? Remember this one time. I think I told you guys this story before. This is one time where I thought that I would get my dad to stop spanking me by threatening him to call Child Protective Services. I told my dad, I said, Dad, if you ever pull a stunt like that, I remember I was at the top of the stairs. I said this to him. I think I even said it in Arabic. You ever pull a stunt like that again, I'm going to call Child Protective Services on you. 
So my dad immediately, he didn't even think about it. He starts yelling down from upstairs to downstairs so my mom could hear him, Elaine, Elaine. Yes, I'm weird. What's wrong, Habibi? What's wrong? Get the video camera and bring it upstairs. <laughs> Mom runs up with the video camera. My dad sets up the podium, gets the tape in there, hits the record button, makes sure it's pointed in my general direction, makes sure that he instructs my mom on how to keep the camera pointing and keep it uh, recording and so on and so forth. And once he knows that the camera is recording and it's being pointed at me, he manages to give me or then proceeds to give me the beatdown of a lifetime. Don't you ever threaten me again. Pa, pa, pa. Stops the video camera, pulls the videotape out of the camera, hands it to me and says, and when you call the Child Protective Services, give them this tape too. <laughs> he was the way he was. Yeah, I know, I've given some of you parents some ideas now. The point is this. My father was the type of man that when he said he was going to do something, folks, he didn't back down. He was going to do it. And our father in heaven, when he speaks through the holy prophets and when he speaks through his word, when he says, I promise you that this is going to take place, listen, I can guarantee you he ain't backing down. There is no way he's going to go, ha ha, just kidding, ha, psych, ha, so you thought. He's not like the God of Islam where the Qur'an itself says that Allah is the chief of liars, right? That's not the case here. He's the true and living God. He says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Peter knows this. He's going to address it right now. Look what he says, and this is what I want us to pay attention to. I think this is the culmination here. Something we should pay very close attention to. He says, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. He says, there's one thing that I do not want you to be ignorant of. If there's one thing that I need you to be distinctly and uniquely aware of, it's this. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, what he's communicating to us is that this is going to happen in the flash of a pan. And what you think is a long time is a nothing for God. Why? Because God exists within the realm of eternity and you don't. That's the way it works. And look what he goes on to say. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, the reason why you think God is slowing down, he's not. His timing is perfect. He knows exactly what he's doing. But the reason why you are seeing what you call a delay in his return is because he does not, any, he does not want anybody to be judged to hell. He wants to save them. He wants everybody to come to repentance. How many of you can openly and honestly thank the Lord that he did not come back when other people wanted him to come back before you were a believer, right? How about the people 45 years ago who were praying, Lord, come back right now. And the whole church was saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Or people 30 years ago who were saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, come back. The Lord had come back 30 years ago. I would not have made the decision to follow Christ yet. 
That would be like that song. You've been left behind. That would be me. Those crazy guys in the bell bottoms with the crazy, that's scary. That was a scary song for me. I'd hear the time, oh my gosh, I'm gonna die. That was my fear. God says, thank you. We say thank you, God, because you were not slack concerning your promise. You just want to have all of us come to repentance. That's something beautiful. Look what it goes on to say. Catch this. I love this. Be aware of this, right? But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are in therein shall be burned up. Okay, think about this for a minute. When a thief comes at night, does he say, hey, 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 yo, I'm going to jack your house tonight. He doesn't do that, does he? Didn't call you up and say, oh, man, uh, man I'm going to take all your stuff tonight, man. You better be out the house because if you win it, I'm going to come get you. Oh, well, okay. Uh, I'll, you know, all right, we'll leave. So when you, you know, when you steal us, you steal from us, we'll be ready for you. Doesn't work that way, does it? You wake up in the morning to be shocked that somebody while you were asleep came into the house and you were like, oh my gosh, how could I have not heard this person come in the house? How scary is that? They came and I didn't expect it. A thief never comes when you expect a thief to come. If a thief came when you expected the thief to come, then they would be getting arrested and you would be having a lot of fun watching it. But a thief comes when you don't expect it and thus you are shocked. Now, for you Christians, the day of the Lord should not come as a thief in the night to you. You should be expecting it. But no one's going to know the day or the hour that he comes. Seeing then, look what he says here. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Look at this. And this is the verse I want to focus on. Ready? Looking for and hasting, meaning speeding up. Looking for and speeding up unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Final exhortation that I'll stop at. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Here's the summary of the matter. The Lord is coming back. And he's coming back for this church sooner than we can possibly imagine. Listen, I will be shocked. I will be shocked if my generation dies before it sees the return of the Lord, I, I will be dumbfounded. There is no biblical reason. You know, 50 years ago, well, 60, 70 years ago, you could have argued, nah, things haven't happened yet. So I don't think we're going to see the coming of the Lord. You could have easily argued that biblically. You can't argue that now. Israel was established again in 1948. Jerusalem is becoming a hotbed again. The Temple Mount is becoming ground zero of that hotbed. 
Never in world history have we seen the kind of alliances that we're seeing right now in Syria between Russia and Iran and Turkey. We've never seen it. I don't even think that in recent years we have ever seen such a profound and significant movement for anti-Semitism like we have seen in recent days. And yet, for some reason, as the church of Jesus Christ, we continue to bury our heads in the sand. Peter says, we can't do that anymore, folks. Peter says, knowing that he's coming, it should change the way we behave. It should change the way we live and we act. I don't know about you, but I don't want to get caught not serving the God that died for me when he comes back. You know, I can say this to everybody that's watching online and to all of you that are here. I can say that if you're a Christian, you are absolutely going to be raptured. Make no mistake about it. You are. Even if you're living a, nominally Christian a nominal Christian life, you are going to be raptured. You are not accounted in that group of people that will not be. If you are somebody who has accepted Jesus Christ into your life, you absolutely will be raptured. I just don't want you to be raptured empty-handed. I don't want you to be raptured without having the opportunity to have made a mark for the kingdom before that great moment takes place. We need to know, guys, that the God that we love and serve is coming back for you and me. And I can say it till I'm blue in the face, but we need to learn to internalize it within our own hearts. Now, I will give you this closing thought. When I was a kid, and I just come to know the Lord, 16 years old, I was just beginning to teach the Bible and just getting ready to go into Bible college and lots of wonderful things were happening in my life. I told myself, you know what? I'll go get a credit card. Who cares? I'll get in all the credit card debt I can. Uh, by the time I have to pay it off, Jesus is coming back for me anyway. Right? I used to think that way. I used to tell my dad, Bubba, why are you even trying to pay? Don't worry about the mortgage. Get refi to the longest place out. Get one of those new 45-year loans and pay the smallest amount of money that you can every single month. Because chances are you'll be able to live in the house until the Lord comes back and then it won't matter what happens to the house. That's the way I used to think. I used to think, eh, it's going to burn anyway, who cares? I mean, it doesn't matter. I don't need to be rich. What's the money going to do anyway? And there's some truth to that, right? Now, the older James, the one who people call wiser but knows he's more foolish, actually says this. God's given me a lot of resources. I want to maximize those resources so that when he comes back, he sees me being faithful with them. I don't want to take the money he's given me and bury it and go, well, you know, I had to bury it because I knew you were coming and I didn't want anybody else to have it. 
I don't want to be the guy that says, I got into all kinds of debt because I knew you were coming back anyway and it's all going to burn in hell, so it doesn't matter. I want the Lord to be able to see when he comes back for me that I did all the things as though we were going to live here forever, knowing full well we were going to be on our way out shortly. There's a new way of thinking that I have adapted, not only as a senior pastor of my church, but I think more closely as the husband to my wife. I never really cared about things like life insurance, and I never really did care about things like what happens if I die or when I die and my wife is still here. Never worried about things like that because I didn't have a wife. Now, as a married man, I'm constantly thinking about when I die, what happens. I don't want to leave my wife behind with a mess of things to deal with. The unwise and perhaps ungodly man might say, <laughs> it's her problem, I'm with the Lord, I don't care. Right? But the man of God says, when I leave this earth, I want to leave it in better condition when I, than when I came in. When I leave this earth, I want it to be said of me that I lived a life faithful to the very end. And for those of us that are believers who are expecting the soon return of Jesus Christ, May it be said of us that we had our house in order. May it be said of us that every affair in life, every item, every moment, everything, was left in good places because I occupied until Christ came. And may that be the prayer of our hearts this day. May we occupy until Christ comes. And you might say, well, James, why do I occupy until Christ comes? I mean, come on, Christ is coming. Well, I don't have to worry about that. You occupy until Christ comes because when the world sees you occupying, guess what? Some of them might very well follow that example and be ready when Christ comes too. That is the very obligation that we have. Listen, Jesus Christ coming back soon is our motivation to live better. Jesus Christ coming back soon is our motivation to walk right, to walk humbly with our God. And knowing these things, folks, may that be said of us, that our internal mechanism that drives us to live our lives every day be guided fully and wholly by the Spirit of God who lives inside of us that gave Christ victory over death. Why? Because he's coming back. Amen?